0: very first episode of the International Studies Review of Books podcast. My name is Haspanai, the Books and Reviews Editor of International Studies Review, the flagship review journal of the International Studies Association. In this series of recordings, I and my other colleagues on the editorial team will be conducting in-depth interviews with fellow academics on their newly published works, be they books or articles. We hope you enjoy them. It is a unique pleasure to kick off this podcast series with an interview with Professor Jack Snyder on his latest book entitled Human Rights for Pragmatists, Social Power in Modern Times, published by Princeton University Press in 2022. Professor Snyder is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Relations in the Department of Political Science and the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. His books include Electing to Fight, Why Emerging Democracies Go to War, co-written with Edward D. Mansfield, From Voting to Violence, Democratization and Nationalist Conflict, Myths of Empire, Domestic Politics and International Ambition, The Ideology of the Offensive, Military Decision-Making, and The Disasters of 1914. In addition to these, he is also the editor or co-editor of several books on human rights, global governance, and religion and international relations in addition to a number of scholarly articles in prestigious journals in political science. Professor Snyder is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the W.W. Norton book series on world politics. He received his BA in government from Harvard in 1973 and the certificate of Columbia's Russian Institute in 1978. Professor Jack Snyder, Thank you for joining us uh, for this very first book review podcast of the International Studies Review Journal. It's a special privilege to start this new feature with a discussion about your latest work, Human Rights for Pragmatists, Social Power in Modern Times, published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. Um, I want to begin by asking you about the genesis of your latest book. Your previous works have shed light on the relationship between democracy and war issues related to transitional justice and democratization, domestic sources of international conflict, military and political decision-making, global governance, and other aspects of the modern state system. Is human rights for pragmatists an outgrowth of these earlier interests, or does it spring from a distinct curiosity?
1: Uh, This book actually does uh, arise from some of my earlier interests going back as far as the 1990s, which was a much different period of time uh, in the vibe of the human rights movement. The Berlin Wall had just fallen down. Uh, democratization was uh, the wave in Latin America and Africa, not to mention Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union. Uh, there was Um, a wave of liberal triumphalism. As you know, people were talking about this being the liberal end of history, uh, that liberalism had defeated all comers. And it was just a matter of time until global rule of law, uh, ending impunity for human rights abuses was made a reality. And uh, I, I wrote uh, back then a number of studies warning, uh, first of all, that the transition to democracy and to human rights could be a bumpy road. Um, I wrote a paper um, with Karen Ballantyne that warned people against uh free speech absolutism in countries that were undergoing the early stages of transitions towards more open societies, Uh, we warned that often in that kind of setting, uh, the uh, bad guys, the uh, elites who were left over from the authoritarian period or ethnic entrepreneurs uh, who wanted to play the ethnic nationalism card would hijack um, the media of speech and the press and turn it into an organ of hate speech. Uh, so uh, we wrote an article back in 1996 talking about how that had happened in former Yugoslavia, in Rwanda and Burundi. and. Uh, that uh, we cautioned that uh, you need to have professional journalists and uh, a regulatory structure for the media to make sure in any country that uh, free speech wasn't hijacked. So those those early pieces were warning about the uh, excessive triumphalism of Uh, liberalism. Now we're in a very much different period. I still believe that some of uh, the dangers that we were talking about back in the 1990s are still with us. In fact, they're still with us in spades now. Uh, A lot of what we were warning about uh, has come true and has even come home to roost in our own what we thought were stable, advanced, liberal democratic uh, countries. So, you know, the the um, zeitgeist has uh, turned a corner and now people are starting to get discouraged about liberal democracy. And I also think that there's a danger that that pessimism could swing too far because it's still true that liberal democracies are uh the most successful uh forms of social organization in the in, in the entirety of history in terms of political stability in terms of wealth in terms of equality of rule of law and uh, so this is a book that's uh warning about uh excessive triumphalism at the same time as it's warning about excessive pessimism right and it's in a way
0: it strikes me that it kind of um addresses itself to a kind of a neglected dimension of the crisis of liberalism literature right now that is dominating so much of western intelligentsia especially because so much of that focus seems to be on democratic erosion within liberal democratic societies Uh, of the West specifically. But what you're pointing in your book is that there's a much broader global picture here um, that actually has never been adequately addressed. It was either too triumphalist, and now it's kind of swung without really seeing the gray area in between. Is that correct characterization?
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, one of the uh, interesting and somewhat puzzling aspects of the current wave of illiberalism Uh, which often takes the form of a backlash against human rights. Um, That this is uh, happening inside um, advanced liberal democracies, the far-right populist uh, movements that have brought us Donald Trump uh, that recently elected a neo-fascist government in Italy. But uh, these are also Um, part of a trend of uh, far-right nationalist movements in places in developing countries. Um, Brazil uh, and uh, India has had a turn in this direction. So countries that had been making advances in democratization, uh, but then got stuck in a kind of uh, middle income trap or in a trap of partway um, development of the institutions of democracy, rule of law, and rights. Right. right. Uh, before delving
0: into the core arguments of the book, I want to clear one other conceptual um uh, 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 interest here, that is in the uh, title of your book, you use the term pragmatism. And of course, that has a long philosophical lineage in American political thought. Um, what do you specifically mean by pragmatism um, uh, with respect to human rights, um, and uh, especially in the way that you deploy it in the, in the book?
1: Um, well, the pragmatism uh, as I use it in the book uh, is partly just this simple idea of consequentialist analysis guiding uh, tactics to promote democracy, to promote rule of law, and to promote human rights. Uh, I had an a undergraduate that I was Uh, recruiting to work as my research assistant. And uh, she she says, well, well, what's the project about? I say, well, it's a pragmatic approach to promoting human rights. And she immediately got very confused. And she said, uh, wait a second, I thought that human rights were by definition, idealistic and not pragmatic. (laughs) And uh, so I reminded her that, Ought implies can. It does no good to say something, say that people ought to behave a certain way if the conditions are not there that allow them to act on these ideals. And so my pragmatic approach asks how can we um, harness power, self interest, outcome-oriented, expedient political strategies to actually strengthen the people and institutions and ideals that we need to advance human rights. Right, and that's important because you're not advancing
0: a Uh, as it were, instrumental view of rights here. Um, In pragmatism, there's also this marriage between principle, the intrinsic value of rights, as well as the instrumental uh, uh, benefits that rights can bring to a given society. And that I find in the pragmatist approach, um, uh, it, 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 it has that kind of unique capacity to hold both in mind at the same time, whereas much of human rights literature tends to either be strictly in the intrinsic um, uh, realm or in the instrumental
1: realm? Uh, It does. Human rights activists have tended to emphasize in their rhetoric uh, moralism, legalism, and universalism. Uh, In my approach, uh, principles are important at the two ends of the process, if you will. So uh, the principle is important to establish some aspirational goals. What is the kind of society that we want to create? What principles is it based on? And it's also important as a the goal to keep uh, always in vision as you're uh, making tactical adjustments in order to try to get to that goal. So aspiration at the beginning, uh, goal at the end, but in between, uh, it's important to think about, well, who's going to be on the side of strengthening human rights? Who actually is going to benefit in a direct, immediate, tangible way from improvements in property rights uh, or improvements in women's rights, uh, improvements in minority rights or whatever your your, uh, rights issue is. Uh, Who's gonna benefit and who has the power to uh, be an ally of those people who are going to benefit? Who's going to, uh, want to uh, do the work and pay the costs to organize politically and to promote those outcomes. And uh, so there's the, the pragmatism is uh, the, the uh, tactical calculation of how to get from the aspirations to the goals. And when you think about the progressives in American history, the people who you know wanted to have uh, pure food and and clean slaughterhouses or the people who uh wanted to solve the problems of the great depression you know they they were motivated by um Um, principles but they also wanted to have clean meat and to fix the the unemployment rate it had to work in reality in addition to being a nice ideal that's right that's great let's get
0: to the core argument um of the book which you advanced through five hypotheses Um, and i want to get these um uh, uh 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 out in front um uh each of these hypotheses are fleshed out, I should say, in detail um, through contextual chapters of their own. Um, and but I was hoping that we could briefly go over them and and, and you can speak to uh, why there are um, sequence in the way that they are and, and why uh, they're important guiding hypotheses. You write um, in the second chapter of the book, um, my guiding hypotheses are that rights Thrive one when the prevailing mode of social organization is no longer based on repression and favoritism but has evolved towards social relations among individuals based on impersonal rules of equal treatment. Two, when rights serve the interests of a dominant coalition and when they are stabilized by three implementing institutions and four, a locally persuasive ideology. This book is an attempt to show in general and for specific issues and national context, how these conditions come about. Thus a fifth hypothesis, five, in sequencing the shift to a rights-based society, power and politics lead and rights follow. If you wouldn't mind taking us through this journey from one to five, why, why these hypotheses are so important to the pragmatist approach?
1: So um, my overall frame for this analytical approach is anchored in the idea of modernity and modernization. If you look at the history of traditional societies everywhere, even even in Europe, traditional societies uh, are uh, normally based on a system where Your social group is discriminating in favor of insiders, people who are part of your family, people who are part of your clan, people who are part of your uh, cultural group. Uh, or people who are just part of your back scratching patronage network in a clientelistic kind of system. That's, that's the way um, traditional societies everywhere were organized. Uh, the adjunct to making that work was, you know, not just essentially patronage type corruption and insider. Favoritism, but was also repression, coercive power. So um, that's a kind of social order that uh, you can uh, use in a way that doesn't require a lot of complex, elaborate institutions. If you're not a rich society, if you're not a sophisticated society with high literacy, Um, you can run a society on repression and favoritism. Uh, Modernity is a a higher level equilibrium. Modernity is uh, a form of social organization where people are um, richer, where uh, there's much more social stability where social outcomes in almost everything that we care about, including peace and rights, are much better in modernity. But it's hard to to have modernity. You have to have skilled citizens. You have to have institutionalized ways of behaving uh, that are based on equality before the law and impersonal social relations where you interact with people in the marketplace or by voting um, you know not because you have some special back-scratching personalistic relationship with them but just because you know everybody in the society um, interacts uh, in um, free exchange or uh in equally in the courtroom so it's a a form of social organization that works a lot better but it takes institutions uh to run well so i see the movement from traditional society to modern society being one that um goes from this kind of repressive personalistic setup to one that we're familiar with with equality before the uh law and uh and uh rule of law and accountable government so uh how do you how do you build this uh well um if you look at the history of uh rights and human rights it it started with um, the economic development of uh towns that had an incentive to get away from the old feudal um, um discriminatory social status relationships and move towards market relations uh to have, courts, property rights, uh, protections against uh, arbitrary abuses of power, because that was what you needed to make um, middle class uh, uh, economic relations work in the marketplace. Uh, That worked so well that you wound up with commercial society, capitalism, and that worked so well that you wound up with a big dynamic working class. And once you had a big working class, people uh, organized for their economic rights, their social rights, as well as their political rights. So this is a process that took centuries to develop. And a key part of the argument of the book is that this modernization process populates the landscape with interest groups uh, with uh, social classes uh, and organizations where people have interests and skills and they have the motive and the capacity to work together to try to create this um, impersonal, more equal rights kind of society. And why? Because it works better for them. It's more stable. It makes them rich. And um, so, you know, this is a a long process that uh, goes through the stages of institution building uh, and uh, based on strong coalitions. So uh, one of the books that I talk about is a great study of uh, cor- corruption and anti-corruption reforms over uh, the decades and centuries. And uh, the first point that uh, this book uh, by uh, Professor uh, Munju Papidi uh, makes is that uh, modernization is a key underpinning pinning, a key facilitating condition. If you don't have a society that is beginning to modernize economically, uh, then you don't have the the kind of interest groups that are capable of and motivated to uh, work against discrimination, patronage, and corruption, the old traditional society. And you don't have actors who are Commercially and market-oriented, who have an incentive to have courts that uh, and laws and government that uh, allows you to set up fair uh, market conditions. So um, this um, underlying background of modernization is important, um, but it's it's not the whole story. It's also having the coalition that. Uh, builds the institutions piece by piece. Another book that I talk about is uh, Kurt Whelan's book, uh, Making Waves on Different Waves of Democratization. And he starts with 1848, where everybody in Europe, in every country in Europe, was really excited by the revolutionary democratizing politics in Paris. And they wanted to copycat what Paris was doing. And so you had uh, this kind of flash in the pan, popular um, movement, uh, excitement in the streets, wanting a constitution, setting up parliaments. But It all fell apart because they didn't have a strong uh, set of social organized interest groups. They didn't have uh, strong uh, institutions for the workings of these institutions, uh, these interests through political parties. And the 1848 liberal revolutions you know, fell apart pretty much in a year or two. Um, Wayland compares this with the third wave of democratization in the 1980s, the beginning of the 1990s, and he shows, you know, by this time, you've had uh, 150 years of interest group formation, coalition making, and creating institutions like uh courts political parties everything you need to have uh human rights and democratic accountability so uh um, but and you you so, uh,
0: sorry to cut you off but you and yes, but you especially yes. focus on a time period before the 1980s from roughly the end of the second world war up to that as the kind of the closest approximation of this kind of um co-mingling of these hypotheses at work that make not only liberal democracy in the west um uh, uh you know the most uh progressive it's ever been but also deliver on a kind of a rights based order um outcomes uh for the first time in a way that we haven't seen before what's so special about that uh, particular time period from 45 to 80
1: uh right. so um I talk about uh, the uh contradictions in liberalism that uh, were a problem that led to uh, two world wars, a uh, Great Depression uh, one of the books that's uh, uh, had a revival in recent times is uh, uh, Karl Polanyi's Great Transformation, where he talks about the contradiction between um, free markets and uh, political liberty in mass suffrage democracies. And in um, free markets, before you had Keynesian economics, where government policies of creating social safety nets and regulated su- regulating supply and demand through smart government inter- interventions to stabilize markets. Before you had that, uh, market uh, economics um, would go through periods of boom and bust. Uh, they called it creative destruction, but in a democratic society where people get to elect their government, they're not so happy. A lot of the time, the voters with creative destruction, uh, as you know, you see with the periodic boom and bust of the business cycle and occasional great depressions. And if you just have the automatic, uh, movements of markets, uh, this causes huge amounts of pain, and uh, in the 1930s, you had societies making two different kinds of choices of how to appeal to their states to uh, keep these uh, the, the, the pain of market adjustments uh, manageable. One was uh, nationalist fascism. Uh, have a have a market that is run by a militarily uh, powerful state that can conquer the markets and uh, the resources that it needs to maintain economic dynamism the strategy of nazi germany and militarist japan but you also had um, the alternative strategy of a uh, liberal welfare state democracy which is what franklin delano roosevelt and the swedish socialists started to ve- to develop in the 1930s so the idea was to have uh, a strong role for the state to manage the fluctuations of the market through rule of law, including uh, rights protections for the working class and uh, the less powerful people in society. And that this operated by stabilizing domestic political economies. But then after World War II, the international layer was added to this. Um, A set of international institutions like the IMF, the Open International Trading System, the World Bank, uh, that regulated global market relations. So, in political science, uh, we sometimes call this embedded liberalism because you had free markets and um, political liberty embedded in the welfare state that uh, made sure that uh, the creative destruction of unregulated markets could be um, that people. People could be buffered um, from that by well-functioning governmental and international institutions. And so, um, you know, uh, there's some nostalgia for that system that um, institutionalized embedded liberalism back in the 50s and the 60s. What happened was... uh, that 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 system uh, went through a period of uh, a combination of stagnation and inflation. People thought that that system was somehow broken and there was a swing away from regulation uh, in the direction back towards uh, unregulated markets. And so, you know, we call that, by the 1990s, we call that the Washington consensus. It's supported by libertarian uh, philosophies of, you know, get the government out of my business, uh, let me just make as much money as I can, and then the invisible hand will somehow make everybody in the world better off. Uh, and uh, the, the problem uh, with that is we've seen, you know, unfettered globalization uh, leading to losers that are pushing back against this uh, unregulated capitalist system. And they want government intervention. And in all too many places, we're seeing the kind of government intervention that they want being, Uh, nationalist nativist ethnic protectionism white nationalism uh, rather than uh, understanding that the better solution is to go back to the welfare state democracies
0: and and this is i mean raises an interesting question because it's you know it it's a It's a criticism of that Washington consensus period that the triumphalism that followed it, especially in the 90s, um, wasn't so much about the triumph of this kind of institutional um, architecture, if you will, the kind of the pragmatic, pragmatic, everyday uh, things that made Western democracies uh, uh, function more smoothly, but that it was about this almost messianic vision of, of the triumph of rights uh, that it was, it was the, the kind of unfettered individualism at the core of these systems that really made them the, uh, the, the successful models that it became. And you push back against this.
1: Uh, yes. Um, uh, my book pushes back against unfettered individualism uh of the left and the right so uh it's you know easy to criticize uh global greedy capitalists uh especially uh when uh they take over our Twitter and uh uh turn it into uh, a cesspool of uh of uh, uh discourse that uh, you know where illiberals are uh prominently holding forth with uh misinformation at the same time as uh they're uh presiding over um, an economic system with rapidly growing inequality. And so so the the um, libertarianism of the right is, you know, easy to criticize. But what we sometimes forget is that there's also a libertarianism of the left, especially in the United States. People tend to be free speech absolutists. Right. And uh, they don't understand that the successful uh, freedom of speech is embedded in freedom of the press which is presided over by professional journalists who know how to structure a marketplace of ideas, who exercise uh, judgment about what's newsworthy. They exercise uh, judgment about what's uh, a vetted fact and what's an outright lie. they also um you know in interviewing uh uh opinionated people on tv uh if they're good journalists they know how to control the interview and not let um crazy talk run rampant uh unchallenged by the interviewer so um there's a, a lot of structure and um and uh regulation by professionals, you know, uh, usually journalists that go into having a well-functioning marketplace of ideas. Uh, but free speech absolutists forget that. And they think, oh, well, if you have social media on the internet and anybody can say anything they want to and attract an audience in a completely unfettered unregulated way of millions of people uh engaging in incitement uh, falsehood provocation that that's fine that's you know that's their right because of the First Amendment uh but you know we're we're seeing that that uh unfettered uh speech is um quite destructive uh, the First Amendment has, freedom of the press, including the freedom of journalists to be professional journalists, not just freedom of speech. And just one last thing on this, we have examples of how uh, the internet uh, can uh, be very effective as a forum for generating accurate, useful information through the voluntary participation of individuals. It's called Wikipedia. So no, at the beginning Wikipedia was a complete mess. Uh there was a lot of inaccuracy on Wikipedia. There were political fights over the the Armenian genocide like every day. And then Wikipedia finally dawned on them, wait, we need to hire some professional editors. And then the professional editors need to have like rules and the And the professional editors need to establish some system of trusted voluntary contributors based on their track record of doing a good job. And now Wikipedia is really good. Uh, You know, people are saying that Wikipedia is in some ways better than Britannica. And why is that? Uh, It's um, it's, it it shows that there you can have an open um, uh, discourse about the truth as long as it's structured in a way that facilitates um, the truth coming to you know rising to the surface and Wikipedia has figured this out <laughs> and uh, a lot of the rest of social media hasn't figured it out.
0: Right, and I think that speaks also to the kind of very pragmatic nature of Wikipedia itself, uh, that from the beginning it was understood that there will be um, editors who will continuously edit and look for falsehoods, and that the truth ultimately will We'll find out, and this even goes for you know personal biographies of highly partisan figures on Wikipedia that they you know keep getting corrected and approximate the truth even more. That's one of the it, I mean that uh, free speech absolutism is one of the sacred cows as you call them that you take on in the book, and the other one, which I find to be, um, a really a, a very interesting innovation in your book that I haven't seen anywhere, frankly, in the human rights literature, is the use of social psychology. Um, to show why there could be diminishing returns to the naming and shaming of human rights violators, um, especially in outside of uh, Western contexts. Could you say a little bit more about how social psychology can illuminate a pragmatic path here?
1: Uh, Yeah, well, um, the human rights advocates uh, are very happy to say that what they do is naming and shaming human rights violators Uh, that, and, you know, documenting the fact that there has been uh, uh, violations. That's like really the main tool that most human rights uh, activists and advocates use. Uh, They just don't think very hard about, what the effects of shaming are they throw around the the term loosely and um so when you ask them well what do you mean by shaming uh it can mean anything from uh pointing out that there's a violation and criticizing it and naming what the violation is and who's doing it in a kind of um emotionally neutral way, Uh, but it can also extend to, um, you know, uh, fierce denunciations uh, of the action, the actor, in ways that uh, cast a shadow of shame on whole societies where you know, deeply embedded cultural practices are the things being shamed. Uh, So uh, the uh, human rights activists uh, like to uh, create the, the idea that they're just shaming individual violators. But when the violations are things that are just routine behavior, in societies whether it's oppression of women women or whether it's uh torture uh or uh uh you know what whatever the abuse is uh you in a sense are an outsider shaming not just an individual violator but you are an outsider shaming a group as a whole so what I uh, what I did in one of the chapters in the book was to just look back at what social psychology has said, starting with the early Freudians and continuing through the more clinical people and and you know real serious social science uh, of uh, of the emotion of shame and and what I found was that you know, shaming is um, most useful when it's directed at uh, people who are young and you're trying to socialize them to the rules of society. Uh, It's most useful when uh, you do it very gently and indirectly. So like a second grade uh, teacher will say, uh, now class, uh, we're going to talk about our uh, math homework. And uh, some of the students are gonna put their problem on the board. Now, we're gonna remember that when people are talking, uh, we don't interrupt them because, you know, we respect their, um, you know, what they're saying. And uh, so now let's start with Jenny, who will put her problem on the board and explain it. So you haven't, uh, singled anybody out. you've just uh, and you've not shamed any particular person. You've just reminded them of how they're supposed to behave in this interaction. So uh, the norms are clear, but you haven't put anybody in a humiliating situation. And there's the there's another kind of fine line between pointing out a bad action and pointing to a pe- people or a group of people and implying that there's something basically wrong with their character with their identity that they are behaving in this horrible way and um pointing pointing out an action that's remediable if you just say okay Now I get it, I'm not gonna do that again. (laughs) And bringing them back into the social group, uh, that's much better than what often is done at least implicitly by human rights shaming, which is implying there's something deeply wrong with this society that practices things like female genital mutilation uh, and uh, that, it implies that their whole identity is uh, is uh, broken right. and unfixable. And uh, so right. I I did a kind of random sample of Human Rights Watch reports, and I found that there was um, sometimes too much of the latter kind of very harmful shaming going on. and. That therefore, it's not surprising that this produces uh, resentment, uh, denial, backlash, uh, hiding of the practice, uh, rather than uh, correct Right. And this
0: is, I mean, to be clear, this is when kind of rights meet um, cultural tradition and practices when it comes to political oppression um uh, uh, we're talking about an entirely different beast and here i want to kind of bring a contemporary example right now you know over the course of the last six months in iran for instance there have been these anti-regime protests uh massive violations of human rights by the regime summary executions um uh, uh you know um uh, targeted kidnappings etc and it still continues um in a situation like that what would be the pragmatic approach from a human rights perspective rather than uh, uh, besides just testifying um and and documenting the abuses that are happening uh
1: so um iran is a case where um uh, you know many us uh political leaders have um g- 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 have come to the conclusion that official U.S. denunciations of Iranian uh, human rights uh, malpractice is counterproductive because, you know, not only are we an outsider, but we're an outsider that uh, the regime classifies as the great Satan. Uh, We're obviously an outside um, culture that has had, uh, you know, rival relations with Iran for the last half a century, and where we have uh, a culture that is different in many ways from the way that lots of Iranians live. So we're kind of the the last uh c- credible bringer of criticism to, Iran and the Iranian people. Um, Much better to have Iranians who are uh, more progressive, whose own rights are being trampled on, like the women of Iran, especially the urban, better educated uh, women of Iran, and they're standing up for themselves. Uh, It's not gonna be much help to them to have uh, Joe Biden, or uh you know someone on facebook denouncing the behavior of the iranian government or um iranian clerics or cons- culturally conservative iranians that that you know the, the iranians really need to to engage in this uh criticism of of uh their own social practices and the repressions um, of their government themselves. Uh, So sometimes outsiders, if they're very respected outsiders, who are seen as having um, uh, uh, the interests of people in the other society at heart can be useful critics or at least you know useful in like leading the way uh so you know if if you're martin luther king or gandhi or something you probably have enough cred to or the or the pope maybe right. uh, if you're a good pope right. uh, you have the cred to speak out about things that happen in other societies if you've learned how to do it the right way uh, but uh, pounding the table, uh, if you're a, an outsider who's seen as a rival, that, that, that doesn't help.
0: Right. And especially, I mean, given the previous example of not just pounding the table, but actually militarily intervening in, in trying to create the conditions for human rights and democracy in other countries in the region that haven't worked out well is something that people have front and center and can very much um, Undermine the credibility of uh, anyone who is seen as potential allies or allies of the United States um, or, or Western countries in this regard. Um, I want to uh, 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 close out our conversations with one uh, general um, question about um, the sustainability of a rights-based order. Um, is it possible? whether it's possible without the wholesale adoption of a liberal political and economic regime. I mean, one of the uh, kind of nagging uh, implications after reading your book that is kind of hovering over my mind is that there are, if we look at your five hypotheses, there are so many things that have to work together for rights-based outcomes to come about. And I wonder whether it is possible without a liberal democratic um uh political institutional um regime in the first place and and doesn't that present a danger of turning this pragmatism that you've wonderfully laid out in the book um into a kind of a messianic political project um intent on making the world safe for liberal democracy meaning that if we are that this these pragmatic steps always have to satisfy this ultimate end um, or this ultimate kind of telos that they have to um, drive toward.
1: So in the book, I uh, sketch out two possible conceptions of modernity. Uh, One of them is the liberal kind. Uh, The other is based on max weber's notion of modernity as the bureaucratic rationalization of society where there it's a you have an uh, a hierarchical structure that's run by a technostructure, structure and uh it runs efficiently because it follows like rational strategies that are reduced to bureaucratic rules and uh i i talk about you know the people's republic of china as you know possibly a weberian uh iron cage type of uh modernity that would have rationalization but not uh liberalization and rights and uh so my view is that that uh type of approach has been tried before (laughs) and uh you know the soviet union had some aspects of that nazi germany had some aspects of that it it didn't work uh whether china can figure out a way to make illiberal uh uh techno structure uh work as a model of modernity uh we'll see uh I believe the answer is no, because I think that uh, the track record uh, so far of every country excluding Singapore and small oil states is that when you hit the middle income trap at about one-fourth of U.S. GDP per capita, uh, it's much harder to sustain economic growth and political stability based on cheap labor and authoritarian command economics. You need to, you know, we, uh, you know, research by David Dollar, a good Brookings economist that I uh, talk about in the book, shows that you need to have the whole kit and caboodle of human rights not just property rights, but liberal democratic rights, the whole thing, or else you get stuck in the middle income trap. Um, and uh, sometimes when you get stuck, the thing doesn't just you know wind down, it right. explodes. So uh, so the so the question is, if the strategy, is based on a liberal view of modernity, um, and if it takes like decades of uh, reform and building institutional structures and cobbling together effective institutions of those who benefit from the reforms, uh, is uh, what what is this? How how? Um, coercive, how ruthless, how um expedient, unsavory might be some of the the deals that you would have to make on the way through uh this process. And um my my metaphor for the role of the more advanced liberal democracies on how to do this is the strategy of the open door, where the first task of the advanced liberal free market democracies is just to make sure that their own social systems are running well, and that they're completely open to any country that qualifies at some level to join the club of liberal democracies, whether it's uh, the World Trade Organization, or the EU, or NATO, whatever whatever, uh, level uh, uh, a country has reached in its reforms. uh, Have it want to join those uh, global liberal institutions because they're actually working? And that that's both more effective and less off-putting than the hard sell, where you try to uh, intervene in these societies uh, with uh, coercive measures, sanctions, harsh shaming, let alone humanitarian intervention. Um, Generally, it's better to to have this policy of the open door have societies when they're ready voluntarily join the club um, yeah that's that's yeah. that's my uh general <laughs> prescription the specific tactics though uh depend very much on the particulars of the societies and like the, the historical moment right and i i
0: think one of the things that you note um, in the book's um, preface um, really applies here, which is that in order to um, understand how to preserve the system, we must first understand how it came about and what the nature of the rights-based order is, which is oftentimes uh, misunderstood because it is either highly instrumentalist or um, intrinsic and triumphalist at that. Um, uh, 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 at the other end, you note pragmatism should be considered not an alternative to the rights-based order, but rather a tool for evaluating its performance and designing its strategies. Democracy's fixable problem is that unregulated forms of liberalism, libertarian economic and free speech absolutism have thrown away the pragmatic steering mechanisms that were designed to keep rights-based societies on a constructive path. And I like that terminology of rights-based societies because it doesn't make an ideology as the foundation or basis of a system, but something that takes individual initiative and coalitions and the give and take and the power and interest that you highlight in your hypotheses as as its very core at its very core for it to function. Professor Jack Snyder, thank you very much for your time uh, uh, for talking to us about uh, your wonderful uh, book Human Rights for a Pragmatist: Social Power in Modern Times, uh, as I mentioned, published in 2022 by Princeton University Press. Thank you for your time.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk about my book with someone who read it so carefully. Thank you. Thank you very much.